Hudson Institute's Pennsylvania Avenue headquarters in Washington, D.C. This is Policy Talk. I'm your host, Brian Blake. Policy Talk highlights Hudson's work to promote American leadership and global engagement for a secure, free, and prosperous future. In each episode, we examine, in depth, a specific policy issue that affects the United States and our relationship with the world. We hope you'll subscribe to our regular episodes on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. And if you like us, rate us. And now, today's topic. For almost 70 years, North Korea has been a persistent concern for the United States and the world. More than 36,000 Americans died during the Korean War, with another 5,000 declared missing in action. Though an armistice ended combat in 1953, today more than 23,000 U.S. troops remain stationed in South Korea. And in the decades since the fighting stopped, South Korea has transformed itself into one of the strongest economies in the world, currently ranking number 11. In stark contrast, across the 38th parallel, the Kim's repressive rule in North Korea has turned it into a virtual prison state, as they have starved their citizens and doomed millions to labor camps and political prisons. Their economy is non-existent. Despite its corrupt core, the North Korea regime survived for decades thanks to Soviet and Chinese protection and support. But with the end of the Cold War and China's economic turn towards the West, North Korea turned to a new sort of protection, the threat of nuclear weapons. Since the hall of the Cold War, the North Korean regime has used their nuclear weapons program to effectively blackmail the United States and our allies into making cash payments and giving them sanction relief in exchange for pauses in their nuclear program. With Trump's inauguration, Kim hoped to gain the new president's attention by multiple ballistic missile test launches that demonstrated a long-feared ability of reaching U.S. soil. Instead of turning to the previous six-party talk framework, however, President Trump threatened Kim in North Korea, calling him Little Rocket Man and threatening to obliterate his nation. After Trump and Kim got each other's attention, Trump surprised the world by suddenly turning to bilateral talks between the United States and announcing a summit between the United States and North Korea. The first talks in Singapore showed promise, but the latest summit in Vietnam collapsed without a deal as Trump walked away. What should we make of the current North Korea situation? Has progress been made, or are things now more precarious? To answer those questions and give his expert analysis, Hudson Institute Senior Fellow Patrick Cronin joins us. Patrick joined the Hudson Institute at the end of 2018 and is our new Asia-Pacific Security Chair. He previously ran the Asia-Pacific Security Program at the Center for a New American Security, and before that was Senior Director of the Institute for National Strategic Studies at the National Defense University, where he simultaneously oversaw the Center for the Study of Chinese Military Affairs. Dr. Cronin has a rich and diverse background in both Asian-Pacific security and U.S. defense, foreign, and development policy. In 2001, Dr. Cronin was confirmed by the United States Senate to the third-ranking position at the U.S. Agency for International Development. While serving as Assistant Administrator for Policy and Program Coordination, Dr. Cronin also led the interagency task force that helped design the Millennium Challenge Corporation. Dr. Cronin taught at the National Defense University for seven years, where he received the Army's Meritorious Civilian Service Award upon his departure in 1997. Dr. Cronin has also taught at Georgetown University's Security Studies Program, the Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies, and the University of Virginia's Woodrow Wilson Department of Government. He has also served as a U.S. Naval Reserve Intelligence Officer and an analyst with the Congressional Research Service. He read international relations at St. Anthony's College, University of Oxford, where he received both his Master in Philosophy and Doctorate in Philosophy degrees, and graduated with high honors from the University of Florida. Patrick, 
welcome to Policy Talk. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Brian. So perhaps it would be best if we started out with you just giving some background on North Korea. Um, you're an expert in the region. I think most Americans and, and our listeners know the, that it's a horrible place. Perhaps you can uh, go into a little more detail on that and, and the regime that's there. Well, North Korea starts with really the Korean Peninsula, and that goes back hundreds and hundreds of years in which the Korean Peninsula has often been the treasure sought by the major power of the region, uh, China and Japan most notably. But until Japan defeated Russia at the Battle of Tsushima in 1904-1905, um, it looked like Russia might become the dominant uh, power wanting to exert its influence and control over the Korean Peninsula. Japan colonized it, of course, and then eventually uh, lost World War II. It was liberated by the United States and our allies, and it was divided by the Soviet Union uh, in the north and the United States in the south. That led uh, to a Cold War, uh, as the Cold War set on between the Soviet Union and the United States and their allies. And North Korea became not only a, a war-torn uh, desolate economy, but it became uh, under the tutelage of the Kim family. Uh, Kim Il-sung, the founder uh, who had fought the Japanese and also fought many North Koreans or, or other Koreans uh, en route to becoming the, the dictator of North Korea, uh, established North Korea and uh, created uh, a plan to invade the South. Um, and eventually convinced Joseph Stalin in 1950 that he should invade the South because the United States was apparently retreating from the area. South Korea was kept largely unarmed um, and was still very poor. And he also convinced even Mao Zedong, who had recently achieved uh, a victory, a communist victory over uh, the Guomindang in China. And so in 1950, North Korea launches a surprise war um, that war leads to bitter fighting and a great sacrifice all around. And eventually an armistice is produced in 1953 that largely ceases the violence. Um, and since 1953, we've been locked in a Cold War with North Korea. Now on its third Kim leader, Kim Jong-un, who took over from his father, uh, Kim Jong-il, in December of 2011. Uh, when Kim Jong-il died. So we have three Kim leaders through the entire history of North Korea, an a dictatorship where you have uh, the party and the military under the Kim family, and now we're trying to find a way out of this Cold War. We've, we've sought previous attempts to exit a Cold War, most notably in the 1990s after the East-West Cold War ended, and there were a flurry of agreements, both between North and South Korea and between the United States and North Korea, famously the agreed framework uh, bilaterally between the United States and North Korea, which closed down the Yongbyon reactor and was establishing two light water nuclear reactors and providing heavy fuel oil shipment to North Korea in exchange for this denuclearization attempt. That eventually failed, especially when it was obvious that North Korea was cheating and uh, in, in creating a highly enriched uranium facility and capability outside of its plutonium uh, production of fissile material for nuclear weapons. And then there was a big attempt in the first decade of the 21st century. The six party talks culminated in an agreement by Kim Jong il. And the six parties are uh, China, the US, North Korea, South Korea. 
Japan, um, and, Japan Russia. and Russia. And so you had the two Koreas, you had the United States and China, and you had Russia and Japan all agreeing that North Korea would uh, denuclearize. Uh, but that was a very short-lived promise by Kim Jong-il. And eventually, the six-party talks broke down. We haven't had a meeting for more than a decade of the six parties. And uh, throughout the Obama administration, there was a strategic patience approach to North Korea, which essentially um, allowed North Korea the space to keep building a nuclear arsenal and keep improving and expanding the range of its missiles um, so that when President Trump came to power in January of 2017, he inherited what former President Obama told him was the most serious security problem he would be facing in his new administration. And that's been the background to the last couple of years of a search for breakthrough from this Cold War during the third Kim and, and the Trump era. So how, going back to, and we'll get a little bit into the, the talks because the, uh, I know our listeners want to hear about um, where we are now, but continue on the history a bit. How have the Kims been able to maintain this regime over the last 70 years? Well, you don't maintain a family dynasty over more than 70 years by being a, a philanthropist. You, you be, you know, you are a brutal uh, regime. You, you make the law and you kill people and exile people who oppose the law, oppose your rule. And um, this is how the Kim family has operated. It has essentially uh, been compared to a, an outlaw state, a criminal state. Um, you know, I don't want to pile labels on the regime. The results speak for themselves in terms of the gulags, in terms of the people who've been exiled or executed, in terms of the repression. It's, it's at the bottom of the list for countries uh, with freedom. And uh, North Korea, though under the third Kim, Kim Jong-un, now 35 years of age, the idea was here was somebody who was educated in Switzerland for a couple of years. He's younger. He wants to be different. He really wants to kind of open up, but right. he doesn't know really how to do that. And so this is uh, maybe a different period, but you know, so far it doesn't seem so. So Kim, how, how strong is his control over the regime? We know that he um, sent us, well, I, it is widely assumed, but assassins uh, killed his, his uh, half-brother, Kim Jong-nam, in Malaysia uh, at Kuala Lumpur Airport a few years in a brutal way with VX gas, with a VX nerve agent. Sorry, it wasn't a gas. He, he obviously has done numerous purges within his own uh, regime and, and the hierarchy to make sure he maintains power. How, at this point, how, how strong is his grip, and uh, is there any fear that uh, on his part, not on, not on our part, but on his part, that, that he could lose it. Being a closed dictatorship, it's always hard to get a real accurate gauge of the grip on power. But here's what we can say. We can say that uh, he has, like his father and grandfather, purged hundreds. He, unlike his father and grandfather, actually executed his uncle, who was considered his regent, Chang Sung Tech, yeah. the man who was going to help him groom him into power, um, appointed essentially by his dying father. And um, he had him killed with anti-aircraft gun uh, for essentially having money outside of uh, Kim Jong-un's purview and uh, having too much power. Yeah. Uh, and J Kim Jong-nam, his half-brother, when he was assassinated in Kuala Lumpur, this was essentially a hit that Kim Jong-un had wanted to make from the very beginning because this was his one real threat to the throne, essentially. Right. So 
even though he may not be immediately challenged, when you're that powerful, any challenge looks threatening. And so the paranoia of the regime is sort of a factor that we can't tr truly get our arms around because we see change, democratic change, peaceful change all the time in our democracy. But in North Korea, you don't have change. You've only had the Kim family. Right. Um, so it's a stunning uh, kind of system. And it's, it's rooted in medieval history and certainly in, in Korean history, but it seems anachronistic in the 20th century, in the 21st century. This doesn't seem like a regime that can survive. And because of that, Kim Jong-un probably uh, continues to shuffle his key military men so that they're not in a position to put a bullet through his brain. Because even when he left the country to go to Vietnam, there was uh, speculation that he couldn't stay out of the country that long. But he did. So obviously he feels like he did enough in terms of the purges. He's still in control enough. I think the long trip from Hanoi home, however, probably did strike some fear into him because he thought he was coming home with an agreement. Right. He didn't come home with an agreement, and that could be sowing the seeds of a future coup that we can't see yet, and okay. we won't know until it happens. We do know in the 1990s when the, when, the, when the famine killed well in excess of a million North Koreans, some say up to two million, but the horrific famine in the 1990s, there was essentially a renegade uh, military commander, Six Corps, that's now been expunged from the record, um, that tried to mutiny. Okay. And, and it was completely put down by Kim Jong-il, his father. Okay. So it, it is a perilous place. And, and I think as we talk about, it's important for folks to think about when we talk about the, these summits, um, not just, you know, we, we stay focused on what's going on domestically with, with, with Trump or Obama, um, but the, the leader of North Korea is, is in constant jeopardy of losing his grip on power, his, his grip that isn't earned. It's just through fear and intimidation and violence. But uh, it is a major, I assume, driving factor as he enters talks, thinking about what's going on at home and how this is going to affect his, his grip. Uh, we, we really don't appreciate our free media in our country, in our democracy, until we think about the distortion that it has we have strong democratic institutions where there is peaceful change. In North Korea, literally you only see smiling Kim Jong-un all the time because that's all the propaganda state of North Korea will allow us to see. Right. And it's very rare to get a glimpse behind the scenes. And even Pyongyang is not behind the scenes. It's still a, a Potemkin village in sorts. Right, right. So let's talk about the, the history of, the, of these summits. And you, you delved into it a little bit. You mentioned when uh, the framework that was in place prior to President Trump coming into office, and we won't go all the way back to you know, the 80s and, and 90s, but the framework that was in place was the six-party talks and involved those six nations. And the belief was, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, and the belief was that we need to keep all of these, these nations together um, in these talks to show them that they don't have, you know, you can't go to Russia on the side or China on the side to, to try and, you know, weasel out of this, that we're all serious about your nuclear program. Um, whether China and Russia were as serious as we are, uh, the United States is, leave, is left to be said. But, but tell us kind of the history of the six-party talks, um, and then Trump comes in and, and he changes that all up, and, and why you think he did that. Well, to think about the six-party talks, you, you still have to roll back to the 1990s, that even when there's a historic breakthrough between North and South Korea, as there was in 1991 and the beginning of 1992, before that erupted in 1993, when North Korea walked away from its voluntary obligations to the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty, 
That produced the first major nuclear crisis. That produced a bilateral agreement between the United States and, and North Korea, which then was multilateralized uh, th through the Korea Energy uh, Economic, uh, Korea Economic, I'm sorry, Keto, the Korea Economic um, Development Organization, yeah. um, which was a, officially a non-governmental organization, but it was a collection of those governments, essentially. Um, when you get to 2003 and four, and there's been a breakdown in the agreed framework, there, it's replaced by a first attempt of six parties to come together and try to pull back the thread, put Humpty Dumpty together again in new nuclear talks. And it actually produces an agreement from Kim Jong-il uh, in 2005 to promise to denuclearize. But unfortunately, there's no implementation. In fact, we pay for the Yongbyon reactor, it seems like, every time, and then there's no, no follow-up. Now, the Yongbyon reactor, just, that's the main that, reactor where they're, they're creating uh, right. fissile material. Is that correct? It's, so it's in a, today, you can say it's one of their sites where they produce fissile material, but it's the home of the famous 5-megawatt plutonium reactor. Plutonium was their original fissile material uh, choice uh, for making nuclear weapons. It's all they had. So in the 90s, it was good enough to get Yongbyon. When we found out later that they were also creating highly enriched uranium facilities, both at Yongbyon and outside Yongbyon, suddenly the whole game changed. And even today in 2019, you've got Kim Jong-un trying to sell us the Yongbyon reactor, but not admit and not sell us, if you will, the highly enriched uranium materials that are being produced outside of Yongbyon. All of this is in the press, and it's speculated, and it's in the intelligence community, so we can't know for sure. But the uh, idea here is that there is uh, more avenue for creating nuclear weapons than just at Yongbyon. So okay. if you only buy Yongbyon, you're not really buying the nuclear arsenal. You're only buying part of it um, or part of the production of future nuclear weapons. So um, anyway, the, the six-party talks, though, are not a panacea. The six-party talks were a way to buttress the major bilateral diplomacy that would go on. North Korea wanted a deal with America, right? right? So unless you can get America and the United States to make a, cut a deal on defense and security, there's no serious deal. The other deal that, that South Korea has always wanted, depending on which administration has been in power, is peace with North Korea. And so th those are the two things that have changed over the years. South Korean governments have come and gone, and when progressives have been, been in power, no Tae-woo during the six-party talks, but Kim, um, Kim Dae-jung in the 1990s. Those are the two earlier progressive governments. Moon in, in South Korea. In South Korea. Moon Jae-in is the current president. So you've got three progressive governments, all very closely related, um, who have sought so-called sunshine policy of opening up North Korea through people-to-people -people ties, economic ties, and finding ways to have peace. Moon Jae-in, the current president of South Korea, has, has moved... Um, decisively and single-mindedly to try to forge an inter-Korean peace. He's totally wedded to this being his legacy, yeah. and, and so he depends on it. But he cannot move forward with peace unless the United States is satisfied that North Korea is starting to take substantial steps toward denuclearization. And so at Singapore last year, President Trump took a chance um, against a lot of experts who said, no, don't go to a summit unprepared. But he broke the ice with, with Kim Jong-un, who is, after all, the top decision maker and maybe the ultimate and only decision maker who matters in North Korea. And he got a declaration of good intentions. He got a he got an agreement in principle, basically, right. saying he will denuclearize. That's sort of what his father had done during the six-party talks, in effect, but a little less sort of legal. Um, and 
in exchange, the United States was willing to look at economic development. But that was the vision. That wasn't the implementation plan. Right. So now we go to the Hanoi summit, um, and here um, there was a, a breakdown of understanding. North Korea wanted to sell us the Yongbyon reactor in exchange for substantial relief of sanctions, which was not a, a deal that could ever be struck by any American president. Um, and Kim Jong-un knew it. So the fact that he was putting it on the table after eight months after Singapore meant and suggested at least he wasn't serious or he thought Trump was so weak that he would give in. Trump didn't do that. Trump countered actually with a bold plan. He said, well, let's, let's do a grand bargain. Let's, yeah. be, let's be, show our agency here. You give up all your weapons of mass destruction. We'll give up all sanctions. Um, and Kim, of course, blanched at that. He wouldn't take the small deal. He wouldn't take the big deal. And so amicably, the summit ended. And now it's time for Kim to go back and think, does he want a small deal? Is he willing to do a big deal? It's probably not willing to do a big deal if he wasn't willing to do the small deal. The only hope for diplomacy uh, right now between Kim Hyok Chol, who is the counterpart to Steve Began, our special representative, is for them to come back and say, look, we'll give you all of the fissile material production and add that to, the, to, to what we've not really called a freeze for freeze, but is in effect a de facto freeze for freeze where North Korea has frozen nuclear and missile tests and now they might freeze fissile material production at all their sites, in theory. Um, in exchange, we would be freezing a lot of the military activity. Hence, President Trump withdrawing support for some of the large military exercises right. and making them less provocative because that's something that the president can control. Without, he can't control yeah. sanctions unilaterally. Right. Those are going to be in bailiwick of Congress or the United Nations or others, but he can control exercises. And he also knows the United States is a much stronger military power. So we have some ability and leeway to take risk while we test Kim Jong-un. So when it, it's interesting you bring that up because he, he did walk away and there was a lot of fear that President Trump would uh, want a deal so badly that he'd just have a deal to have a deal. So you know, we, we saw both the left and the right and, you know, his critics and his backers uh, pleased with the outcome that he walked away from these talks. At the same time, there were a couple of, uh, you know, a few days later, he talked about uh, ending the, how expensive the, the uh, big military exercises are with South Korea, which you're saying was something that's on the table. And it sounds like something he's proffering, even if, if they aren't. What, what was he trying to signal there or was he? Or does he just believe in deep down this really is too expensive to do? <laughs> well, you know, I, I don't know that I know deep down what Trump is thinking, but I, I do know take that. Take your best guess. Yeah, I, I will take it and I'll be, I'll be blunt. But I think um, first let me just say that I think President Trump has been misjudged. Um, and the sense that uh, when he was talking and breathing fire and fury, um, I did not believe he was looking for instigating a military fight. Right. I think he was looking for maximum leverage before diplomacy. Um, and uh, I think when he went to the summit and was looking for a deal, he wasn't looking for a bad deal. He was looking for a reasonable deal. He thought that Steve Began and Mike Pompeo had been able to negotiate at least a substantial step forward, hence the complete fissile material uh, moratorium would have been a substantial step forward. When Kim only provided the uh, Yongbyon reactor, only a partial freeze of fissile material and no freeze on real nuclear weapon production, because right. that's still happening, um, you know, the president knew that was a bad deal. But 
to his credit, he thought, okay, let's go long. Let's, let's throw a Hail Mary here and let's say, let's do the big one. Because what the president really wants, his bottom line is he wants complete denuclearization. He's willing to accept implementation in steps, but he wants the agreement up front. And so if Kim had said, yes, I will have complete WMD, weapon of mass destruction, elimination. And I think John Bolton has since added in that this is chemical and biological, as right. many experts have noted, that it's not just the nuclear weapons. But if there were a complete elimination of their weapons of mass destruction, then the president would go all out to try to normalize and to try to lift all sanctions. And uh, in addition to announcing a peace accord, uh, in addition to creating liaison offices en route to, to embassies and so on. I think the president, again, going back to 2018, as well as this summit at Hanoi, understood that military exercises were something in the executive's purview. So I think in, in terms of when he has to have policy meetings uh, around what are my options, what do I control, I think it's a matter of what Trump wants to control for his leverage in negotiating. I think that's how he deals with okay. negotiation. Not that he wanted to give these alliances away, not that he wanted to give military force away. Did it surprise people? Yes, it surprised people because it wasn't fully deliberative and it wasn't fully coordinated, but it wasn't a complete surprise either. The military knew that these options were being at least thought through, discussed, and we knew from 1990s from the Clinton administration when it signed the agreed framework that there were other ways to exercise and train because the objective is not to have large exercise. The objective is to have deterrence. The objective is to have military readiness in the event of a crisis. And so the question that President Trump could ask General Abrams now at U.S. Forces Korea, his chairman, General Dumford, or, or you know, Secretary of Defense, is will I have, how do we have enough readiness even while we negotiate with North Korea? And he has some latitude here to negotiate for a period of months. But over time, over a period of years without major exercises, you really would lose the ability and the expertise to and, and, and U.S. troops rotate every year, so these, the expertise atrophies quickly. Right, sure. But you would lose the ability to um, resupply South Korea in the event of a war. But in, in the event of a war is an important phrase. Trump knows that in the event of a war is unlikely. So, he, again, he has a little more room. Again, so, we, have, we have big power. We can deter. We can eventually get there if we have to. So was he sending – was that basically an, a, a signal he was sending to – to the regime in North Korea, that is, uh, as Kim went back, that he could reasonably say, see, he's willing to stop these exercises to kind of empower him. Did, do you think that was him trying to nudge him along? I, I think so. And I think the same thing for his uh, his use of terms, right, that uh, we fell in love. You know, he's, he was trying to, <laughs> he's trying to appeal to the psychology of his one interlocutor that matters, right. Kim Jong-un. And that's where all the experts are kind of missing that, that this is not for us. This is not even for the South Koreans. This is not even about the money and the transactional side of Trump, although there is that side. He has, over the years, been somewhat transactional on alliances. But I don't think that's what this was about. I think this really was about sending a signal to Kim, like, look, I am going to give you peace, in effect. Yeah. Okay. You, you said, in, and you had a great piece in, uh, in the National Interest immediately as the summit concluded with the, with the kind of the seven... Um, I don't know, takeaways of, of or reveals, as you called them. Um, in that piece, though, you, you did say that, that these 
sides misunderstood each other. And I'll quote you. It says, um, both sides mis- misread the other, with Kim thinking he could snooker Trump into dropping all sanctions in exchange for limited concessions. And Trump was hoping that he could coax the North Korean leader into thinking the unthinkable, ushering in a modern economy where, by relinquishing his weapons of mass destruction. So if they're misreading each other, is that something that the advi- their advisors gave them bad advice there? Or is that just uh, their, their egos, uh, one versus the other? Well, once you decide to take uh, the diplomacy at the top and kind of dismiss everybody else, um, yeah. you, you've, you now have no uh, second recourse. And that's one of the dangers of summit diplomacy. It's one that many people worried about during the Cold War when Eisenhower met with Khrushchev or when other summit meetings occurred, even between Brezhnev and Nixon, that there was, what if this broke down? Yeah. Um, where, you know, who do you appeal to? Um, I think... For Kim Jong-un, the reason I say this was a misjudgment is because if Kim Jong-un truly had been telling President Moon, um, Xi Jinping, you know, Mike Pompeo, and even President Trump at Singapore that he was willing to denuclearize, then presumably he would be willing to start taking some substantial steps in that direction. So since Singapore until Hanoi, over eight months, the question became, and the only question that was sent over to Pyongyang by Steve Began when he could get into a working group meeting, and they disbanded the working group meetings at the end of 2018, which was one of the problems. Why? Because North Korea was in some upheaval. We're not even sure exactly why. Maybe Kim was getting his house in order in terms of having alignment behind his policy. But he had months to think about, what do I need to give the Americans that will be enough, just enough, to, to let them believe that I'm going toward complete denuclearization? And he knew it was not going to be just Young Byung. He knew that. He had to know that. He met with Xi Jinping four times in the last, since the yeah, last year. Right. So he's getting very bad advice if, if they're not telling him that's not, that, that that would be acceptable. Secondly, President Trump misjudged uh, Kim Jong-un because he really thought that Kim would give him enough. I mean, he didn't go to Hanoi thinking he was going to have to negotiate a basic agreement. He was going to he was going to Hanoi to get the basic agreement and maybe get a, a grand bargain. He got neither. Yeah. Now, Pompeo had, had been, obviously you mentioned Steve Began, um, our, our special envoy to, to North Korea, but Pompeo had gotten himself very involved leading up to the summit. And that's when you started seeing signaling that from President Trump and the administration that perhaps nothing would come out of this. I I presume they they did think they were going to go in those those final talks and, and get something better on the table, and they did not. Is that a correct assumption? Yes. I mean, I again, I if I'd been – it's easy to you know be Monday quarterbacking, but um, I had written beforehand that the president should postpone going to the summit until he has that basic agreement in hand, you know, quietly, pre-negotiated. Right. And then go for something bigger at the summit, but at least you can fall back on the basic agreement. They never – got more than Yangbyon apparently in the early preliminary negotiations. So it's so it's a surprise and probably a misjudgment to have gone. It probably should not have happened when it happened. The shop probably should have put it off. Well, it, it, that I mean, that narrative actually works when you think that he ended it. President Trump walked away from the summit early. Perhaps he thought, look, I'm going to go. I can push him over the line on this and through force of will or, or whatever. And it didn't appear to work. I think he did think that he could use his personal rapport and that failed. That was part of the misjudgment. But also maybe he thought there was nothing to lose politically because, sure. again, for President Trump and for the United States, thinking about our South Korean ally in the region, uh, what's imperative here is the United States do its utmost to show good faith with trying diplomacy. Yeah. Um, and this president has gone beyond any other president to try to actually use diplomacy 
to make a historic breakthrough with North Korea. It's not working, but we it's not for lack of trying. Right. So what what are the costs of it not working? One one of the, the criticism I've heard is, you know, during this time during these summits, North Korea is just chugging along. Now they aren't firing missiles or, or doing nuclear tests we've seen, but that doesn't mean their program isn't advancing. Um, is, is that a, a cost? Uh, is another cost perhaps? Maybe you can speak on this as well. Um, that has this helped solidify uh, um, Kim uh, in in his own country, which we we mentioned earlier, and given him more credibility on on the international stage, which he can then use, you know, through propaganda internally to strengthen his power. Are, are those legitimate uh, concerns? So, if you're doing a cost-benefit analysis of the summit diplomacy, again. One of the benefits here is that we're showing our South Korean ally, President Moon, that we're serious about supporting him in looking for peace on the peninsula. That was important. Um, Secondly, we're showing the region and the world that the United States is willing to make reasonable accommodation to try to find peace on the peninsula. That's important. Thirdly, we're getting important intelligence about the North Korean regime. We really lacked the kind of inner circle access that we now have with Kim Jong-un. That's important. But those are benefits. The costs... Um, North Korea has not in any significant way that we know of substantially halted, reversed the buildup of its nuclear missile program. What they've given up through testing is reversible, and it wasn't necessarily essential to start mass production, which is what uh, Kim Jong-un had said he was going to be doing, mass producing these weapons. That's what he said in his New Year's speech when he called for inter-Korean peace even. So if he's doing that, um, that's hardly uh, denuclearization. It's the opposite. So we are paying a price. The good news is, if there's good news, if you will, um, and I disagree here with some of the scholars like Scott Sagan at Stanford, who recently wrote a very long piece saying uh, experts misunderstand how delicate deterrence is. I disagree. I, uh, you know, deterrence is not just a theoretical concept. Deterrence is a, a real practical human problem for leaders. They don't just fire nuclear weapons. There's a reason there's been no nuclear use since 1945. On the other hand, arms control, which he touts as very successful, is actually littered with lots of challenges. The cheating on the part of North Korea is legion here. So let's not put all our faith in the illusion of arms control that's not going to be productive, and let's not fear that deterrence is going to suddenly break down. Deterrence is pretty strong force for preserving the peace. Great. So talk about the China aspect here. How is China involved in this? What are their, uh, I, I mean, many have said that, that China kind of enjoys this North Korea problem because it keeps the United States off balance, keeps our focus there, means that we have to, to work with them and use that as, you know, in, in whatever equation we have with, in our relationship with China. Um, what, how has China been playing on this? Has this strengthened the ties between North Korea and China or, or, or frayed them? Well, again, based on history, as I started this whole discussion, um, China sees itself, again, as the dominant region power, not just today, but as it heads out toward the middle of the century, the creation of the China dream. So ergo, it wants to be the dominant influence on the Korean peninsula writ large. And therefore, it wants to see the United States displaced from that. Um, It certainly doesn't want to see the United States entrenched in some united democratic Republic of Korea Uh, without nuclear weapons, where the U.S. troops stay on the peninsula forever. So China has been playing a very clever game of trying to appear to help, as it did help somewhat on sanctions enforcement in 2017 during the Fire and Fury, 
That was self-serving on China's part because China wanted to say, look, America, you don't have to use force. We're going to help you put pressure on North Korea to come to the bargaining table. And then North Korea did come back to the negotiating table. And China said, see, we told you they were going to come back. Now just make reasonable, be patient uh, choices, America, and this will all go forward. But obviously, China was not giving very good advice to Kim Jong-un. If after eight months after Singapore, he comes into Hanoi and says, I'll give you the Yongbyon reactor in exchange for the elimination of all the sanctions that matter. Um, a complete non-starter. And so, and even Gary Seymour, who's a great respect for Gary Seymour, wrote in Foreign Affairs this week that this is, of course, classic North Korean negotiating behavior. It's true, but we're not in a classic negotiating stage, right? We're at a second summit meeting. I mean, so you've got to throw away the old book and say, look, North Korea was expected to do much more than that at this point. Yeah. Yep. Now, so China has not been that helpful. China has ulterior motives. Um, China will be helpful up to a point. That is up to the point of maintaining some stability because they certainly want to preserve stability over instability and conflict, but they don't want to do anything to really advance the American position on the peninsula. If the U.S. is willing to negotiate troops off the peninsula, they're happy to see that happen. Okay. So they don't really want to see us fully succeed here. Would they be, do not want to – we have different objectives here. China wants to see us maybe have a peaceful negotiation with North Korea, but en route to us leaving the peninsula. Great. Well um, – one last thing to – one of the criticisms, which I think was valid, was uh president, when he came home, uh, talked about Otto Warmbier and and his uh, tragic death. I mean, he was uh, – we don't know exactly what happened in Korea, but we know he came back from North Korea in a comatose state and, and unfortunately succumbed to his injuries quickly after. The, the president used uh, – uh, had his parents as uh, as guests at a at the State of the Union a couple years ago and, and – to uh, great emotional effect, talked about um, used their son as an example of the of the oppression and the, and the really evil regime that's that's there. Um, but strangely, when he came back, he kind of made excuses for Kim. Was there a strategic reason for him saying that and saying that he wasn't involved in this and he believed him? Or uh, what are your thoughts on that? Well, the tragic death of Otto Warmbier was accurately captured by the president during the State of the Union speech. This right. was horrific. It, it bespoke of the regime's real nature. Um, and it, it kind of revealed, here's this innocent young American student going over to North Korea thinking this is an adventure and realizing that this is a brutal dictatorship and it can kill you. Um, Kim, um, you know, taking Kim at his word, of course, should never be uh, something that any American president does. But I think as the president explained after he got home at the CPAC meeting, in fact, right. that he felt he had a dilemma. He was trying to win negotiation on nuclear weapons, but um, and, he, and that, that's true. That is the dilemma that the president faces. You, as president, you cannot dodge one issue. You have to deal with all the issues. Um, and he was trying to deal with a nuclear issue at the summit, but he made a mistake by making that statement that he trusts Kim Jong-un. He, he just should not have made that statement. Do you think he knows that? I hope so. I mean, I think I think his advisors certainly know that. I mean, the point right. is, you do not praise a dictatorship's uh, worst tendencies. Just you can remain silent and mute for the moment because that's right. not the moment to pick it up. Um, there's another time to talk about it, but you certainly don't uh, reinforce the myth that somehow Kim Jong Un sh didn't know about Otto Warmbier's death. I mean, yeah, he he knows about everything that happens. Of course he does. Um, all right, so to. To wrap this up, what what can we expect going forward? Are we is there going to be another summit? Um, do we you had kind of alluded earlier to to Kim going back and maybe now they realize they can't just 
get Trump to agree to anything to, to take home a victory, that they may have to actually make actual concessions. Do you, do you see any future here that's, that's positive? Well, you see both sides looking for new leverage. So you see North Korea doing some saber rattling by letting satellite images come out of essentially commercial overhead satellite images that suggest new activity at their ICBM, Tongchang-ri, uh, which is also called their satellite launch site. But that's really a cover for their ICBM launch facility. Um, and they may be preparing for a launch, or maybe they're just doing some saber rattling to say we could launch again. And meanwhile, the United States... John Bolton, the National Security Advisor, on the weekend talking about the president will be really disappointed if there's a launch, meaning we're going to go back toward dialing up the sanctions. So that's where we are right now. We're prepared to dial back up the sanctions. North Korea says it's essentially prepared to start uh, lifting the moratorium on missile testing. If either if, if the missile testing moratorium and nuclear testing moratorium ends and North Korea in you know, is in unmistakably um, sort of arming, then I think the dialing up of the pressure is inevitable. And I think that's probably where we're headed. The reason I say that is because the Hanoi summit revealed the real bottom line of Kim Jong-un. And at this point, Kim Jong-un, after eight and a half months after Singapore again, not able to take a step beyond Yangbyon, suggests a lack of seriousness. He knows he can run out the clock on the Trump administration or may think he does or can. Um, and in order to prove seriousness on his part, he knows he has to take substantial steps or he should know that because that's what the administration has been telling him from day one. And the fact that he's not able to do a serious step, forget about complete denuclearization. All he needs is a serious, substantial element of the nuclear arsenal to be put under verification. And he's unwilling to do that. So I think we're headed back in the direction of ma maximum pressure but probably not quite fire and fury. I think this will be uh, an amicable return to maximum pressure. Okay. Well, we are glad that you've got your uh, expert eye on this, and I know you'll be watching it and uh, continue writing about it and, and, uh, and meeting with the folks that, that are helping making the decision. So we appreciate your work and appreciate you joining us today, and, and I hope our listeners, I know our listeners, uh, I know I did, left uh, with a better knowledge of what's going on. I look forward to carrying on the conversation, Brian. Thank you. Thank you. I also want to thank all of our listeners for downloading this episode and for being subscribers to Policy Talk. And if you haven't subscribed yet, please do and tell your friends about us also. If you have any questions or comments or suggestions for episodes, please don't hesitate to contact us at policytalk at hudson.org. That's policytalk at hudson.org. From all of us here at Hudson Institute, we appreciate you listening. I'm Brian Blake. <laughs>